Welcome to the Deep Bible Studies Podcast, where we discover, explore, examine, and practice the Word of God. I am your host, Claudia Rivera Guevara, and today we will be starting John 5, 1 through 15. So let's just get right into it. The healing at the pool on the Sabbath. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Right off the bat in this first verse, there is no particular feast mentioned, but you will find it throughout the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are constant Jewish feasts happening. They are so important, honestly, just in general, but they also give us perspective to when during the year the events took place. A couple of examples could be Passover in John 2.13, John 6.4, and John 11.55, Tabernacles in John 7.2, Hanukkah slash the Feast of Dedication in John 10, 22, and so on. Let's just move on to verse two. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an air man called Bethesda, which had five roofed colonnades. Bethesda in Greek means house of outpouring. This pool had been excavated in the north area of the temple, and it was found to have five roofed colonnades, as John said, a fact that evidences the veracity of the Bible. So now verse 3 says, In these lay a multitude of invalid, blind, lame, and paralyzed. This was talking about people with impairments. So they would usually lay around the pool waiting for us, verse 4 once said, waiting for the moving of the water. We'll get back to why there is not a verse 4. Whoever stepped into the moving water, which was still and would only be stirred by an angel, would heal from any disease. This was actually a pagan belief. So all kinds of sick people believe this and would place themselves next to the pool. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, we go to hospitals today and personally, it breaks my heart to see so many people suffer. Sickness is a direct result from the fall. The fact that we all in Adam have sin, it has distorted everything. I mean, it's just as Romans 5:12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Death is the wages of sin. Sickness is a product of sin. Now, I'm not saying this to tell you that a specific sickness that you have is a specific judgment from God for a specific sin in your life. Not at all. I don't know that. I cannot say that. What I can say is that all sickness in general is a product from mankind's own sin in general. It serves in revealing the deeper disgustingness of our souls, hearts, desires, and thoughts. I never give any personal testimonies in this podcast, but I feel as if this topic I need to. I have been struggling with a certain disease that causes daily pain and physical struggle constantly. I have been dealing with this for a while now and I'm getting treatment, but at first I was confused because I saw this as a stumbling block for the work in ministry that the Lord had willed for me. Yet as a disease has progressed and continues to progress, I realize more and more that this is just a taste of the production of my own and mankind's sin. I mean, some of the worst pain I get is nothing compared to what I deserve. I deserve hell. We all do. We all blasphemed, lied, cheated, stolen, committed adultery, committed murder, fornicated, had fits of anger, and way more against a holy God. I'm not saying that we have all done all of these things, but in a sense, yeah. I mean, we're talking about a set-apart, righteous God who justly could give us what we deserve, and yet instead he took that punishment. He humbled himself and dwelt among you and me so that he could take that punishment and free us from condemnation. 
And instead of being in damnation, now he adopts us and calls us his own. And this was only because Christ paid the price. If that is not compassion, I don't know what is. So you see, yes, God can heal us, but that's not the point. Christ didn't die and resurrect so I could be completely physically healthy because I'm not, and that's true. Rather, he gave me my disease so that I might further know him and in his compassion, justice, righteousness, and love, he has healed me. He's healed my heart. He has made me new so that I might continue to know him. Everything is so much bigger than it seems. This is beautiful. And it's a true story of redemption where God in his righteousness reconciles us to himself only because of what Jesus did on that cross. So my heart really does go out for those people who suffer from disease. For this is awful and nothing can take away from the pain. But also we decay in this life. We are decaying in this life, we're fleeting, and we are gonna lose our lives, but how much worse is it to lose your soul? I know I kind of went on a tangent there, but I wanted to specifically just testify about what Christ has done in my life, because the disease that I have, it has revealed my sin, it has revealed so much of the grossness inside of me, because I feel this pain and I understand that I have deserved much worse and yet Christ saved me from that. Therefore, I just want to mortify any of the hanging sin. And I'm not perfect and I will never be, but I am led to the perfect one to depend on him and be reconciled to him. Jesus's compassion really resonated with me and what I'm physically going through right now. And it leads me back to the cross. But let's get back to the context. Witnesses said during those times that the water would be red because of minerals, possibly giving it medicinal values. So it wasn't necessarily that an angel would come. That was a pagan belief. If not, the water was red because it had a lot of minerals that really would work as a medicine to heal people. Moving on, it says one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So this presumably meant that the man was paralyzed, but it doesn't outright say it so really we just know that he couldn't move so then verse 6 says when jesus saw him lying there and he knew that he had already been there for a long time he said to him do you want to be healed the sick man answered to him sir i have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred and while i'm going another steps down before me jesus said to him get up take up your bed and walk at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked now that day was the Sabbath. I mean, people witness this man being paralyzed for 38 years and then suddenly see him walking. Now seeing him fully carrying his own mat and walking was definitely mind boggling. This reveals the genuineness of Jesus healing this man. Also, the passage says that there was a multitude of needy people there, yet none of them saw Jesus. In other words, Charles Spurgeon says, a blindness had befallen these people in the pool. There they were, and there was Christ who could heal them. But none of them sought him out. His eyes were on the water, waiting for it to be shaken. They were so burdened with their own path and the real one was neglected. The fact that all of this was done on the Sabbath would be the source of controversy for the next passages that we are going to be reading. So then verse 10 says, So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Exodus 20, 8-11 says, Remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, 
or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. We can clearly see that scripture here refers to regular employment, yet the rabbis created an oral tradition much more extreme with 39 actions you could not do during the Sabbath or you would be an unlawful person. So carrying his bed actually was a sleeping bag or a cot was a violation due to the rabbi's interpretation of the command not to work or do business on the Sabbath. It was not a violation of God's law of the Sabbath, but it was a violation of their interpretation of God's law. John MacArthur states it on spot, I think, when he says, the man had broken the oral tradition, not the Old Testament law. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. So they asked him, who was this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. The Jewish leaders did not want to know who healed the crippled man. They wanted to know who told him to carry his bed on the Sabbath. To them, Jesus was the man who violated the Sabbath. To the man who healed him, Jesus was the man who restored him physically. So then verse 14 says, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that Jesus had healed him. The fact that the man reported Jesus to the authorities showed how intimidated the man was by those religious leaders. The penalties for disobedience on the Sabbath were serious. Anyone who carried something on the Sabbath, if he had done this even unconsciously, must make a sacrifice for sin, even if he had not done it intentionally. He should be thrown out and stoned. John MacArthur states, although the opposition to Jesus is smoldered beneath the surface, the story of Jesus' healing at the Bull of Bethsaida highlights the beginning of the open hostility towards him in Jerusalem and other southern parts of Judea. So actually, I want to finish off why there is no verse 4. Right off the bat, it is not part of the original and early manuscripts of the gospel according to John. This verse was probably added by someone who was copying it. These people were the ones who wrote the copies of the scriptures considering that photocopiers didn't exist. This person probably added this verse to almost add context to why the water was churning, but the origin of it seems to be a local belief about the angels and like I said, a pagan one. So does this mean that the Bible is not reliable and full of errors? Not at all. Let me just right off the bat tell you that all of these so-called errors in the Bible are grammar errors. People were not educated, so they copied it, but a lot of times they said like, if they were talking about eggs, flour, and bacon, they would say like flour, egg, and bacon. Like that, those were the type of errors they had. This verse not being added does not take away from the central message of the gospel. And also it makes the text more accurate because it's remaining faithful to the original manuscripts. Therefore, God's word. This is the word of God. If basing the reliability of the Bible in the amount of manuscripts alone, well, we don't need to worry about that because the New Testament has over 6,000 manuscripts in Greek written only 30 years after it was actually originally written, while Plato's dialogue has only 20 manuscripts, and the earliest was 1250 years after the original. 
Do you want to keep going? Well, Aristotle's assorted works have only five copies of the original and they were written 1400 years after the original. By the way, this is all courtesy to Gil Carter who first taught me this and encouraged me to learn more. I mean, these are writings that we study in our school, like the Aristotle and the Plato's dialogue. We could go on with historic accuracy, scientific accuracy, and how it is not a translation of a translation. But we've only got so much time. We will, in the long run, talk about these things, but I really encourage you to seek out for yourself. Don't just trust everything that I am saying to you, but seek the scriptures and have a reason behind your faith. As I've said before, biblical faith is not blind faith. So let's just end with 1 Peter 3, 15 through 18, which says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always prepare to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better for you to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You can find more information on our website, www.deepbiblestudies.com, where you will also find the calendar to go along with the book that we will be studying. You can also find us on Instagram at Deep Bible Studies and Facebook, where you can know every single time we post a new podcast. Also, we have an email, contact at deepbiblestudies.com, where you can ask us any questions and we will be sure to get back to you. I hope you have a wonderful day and see you next time.